This audiobook is distributed by Christian Audio. Please visit christianaudio.com to offer your impressions of this work and to explore additional titles. I'm Matt Schmucker, director of Nine Marks. We believe the local church is the focal point of God's plan for displaying His glory to the nations. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. To that end, we pray that Nine Marks Audio will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation. Our guest today is the Reverend Thabiti Anyabwile. That's a mouthful. Thabiti is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Grand Cayman, just south of Cuba in the Caribbean. He is the author of Pure Church Blog and also of a couple of recent books. You can also read some of his stuff on the Nine Marks website, and you can uh, find sermons of his on the Internet. And, Thabiti, we are delighted that you have joined us today. It's a great pleasure to be here with you, brother. Now, just for truth in advertising, you're probably listening to this in 2007 or sometime a little bit later. We're actually doing this in the middle of 2006 on Bastille Day, actually. And I won't tell you when that is. You can go look that up. So that we would have the convenience of having Thabiti here with us because he is just about to head off permanently at this point down to the Caribbean to take up that pastorate that he's accepted. But we wanted to use this opportunity to talk to him and to introduce you to him. Perhaps you've read one of his uh, books or you've heard him speak and you'd like to know more about this brother and what the Lord's done in his life. So for that end, we have Thabiti in here this morning. Brother, thank you for agreeing to do this. Uh, Thank you, brother. It's a a great privilege to be here, humbled by the invitation. All right. Are you ready for the tough questions? Ready for the tough questions. Um, You can choose question A or question B. Which do you want? C. No? you got to choose A or B. Which do you want? B. Are you married? Yes. Really? (laughs) Really. Been married, Lord willing, August 31st, 15 years, to a woman who has in many ways saved my life. Um, She loves the Lord passionately, and uh, for some inexplicable reason, the Lord has given her uh, love for me, and uh, together we have two daughters who right now are eight and six years old and a child on the way, and uh, she's a a rock, a brick. Um, She will be praised among women, and uh, because of her, I I have this privilege of sitting among the elders in the gate. Um, So, yeah, Christy is a wonderful woman, and I praise God for her. Um, inadequately, but I praise God for her daily. Amen. And you all play games. We do play games. I don't know which ones you have in mind. Well, you have friends over and play games. We do have game nights. That's a wonderful way to spend time with uh, members of the church, friends in the church, uh, non-members of the church. What are games that don't work well for having people over to talk? Uh, Battleship. Yeah. <laughs> Does it work? Or I would say well? anytime you try to play Monopoly with Sebastian Traeger, that's just not going to be useful. Well, you know, Sab is, is, is one of the last uh, robber barons. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what ones are good to have folks over with? Uh, couples. It's a great game. It's sort of a, a Christianized version of the newlywed game. We love that. Huh. Uh, we, we love playing um, Taboo and, and things like Taboo. Do you do uh, charades? We do do little charades. Oh, we my. Do. The girls have been... 
Uh, we started charades by teaching the girls to play charades. And now, have you, you know, ever had Matt and Eli Schmucker over for charades? Sounds like a challenge. We have I, not. We have not. Before you go, you need oh, to make sure you do that. Sounds like an emergency game night. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh well, Matt, Matt's a tad bit competitive too. I like that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I see charades with intensity. <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, Thamini, what what music do you like to listen to? Uh, what do I like to listen to most, or just generally speaking? Generally um, speaking. I, I love jazz, and not that Kenny G stuff. I love real jazz, straight-ahead jazz, the classic stuff from the 50s, 60s, uh, big band, uh, but mostly um, small sets. Uh, I love um, various forms of, of Christian music. Um, when I'm at home, I like cranking traditional gospel. Uh, Gregorian it. chants? Not so much. Not that tradition. Uh, not that tradition. That's a different tradition. Uh, <laughs> I love, um, there's a small group of, and growing group of young men who are reformed theologically, who are committed to spreading um, reformational truths via hip-hop music. Mm-hmm. Um, so Timothy Brindle, Shy Lynn. Uh, Shy Lynn just got married. Mark, did right. he? I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. See, see, for those of you listening, Mark is, is quite up on uh, hip-hop gospel here. Yeah. So I had lunch uh, once with Kurt Allen. I mean, that's uh, all we're talking about. Curtis Allen is great. His, his CD progression, excellent. So what do you like to read? Um, most anything. I like fiction. I like history. Uh, mostly read theology and historical theology. What's the last book you read the last page of? The last book I read the last page of. See, that's hard because I worked through three or four books at a time. And um, don't generally finish them? No, I generally finish them. The last one, the last one I finished was a, a biography by Kenneth Silverman on Cotton Mather, mm. uh, which was a, a, a really good read. He, I think he gets fairly speculative at points, you know, introducing some, uh, some psychology at, at various points. But otherwise, it's, it's a good, readable uh, history, exciting history. So for pastors out there listening to this, would you encourage them to read that biography? Yes. And why Cotton Mather? I, I mean, was, he's generally thought of as a brilliant but really wordy guy. And people, I think in the popular mind, he's associated with the Salem Witch Trials. That's right. Well, I had some interest in what I was trying to do is work my way through U.S. history, through biography. Uh, and because of his importance with the witch trial or association with the witch trial uh, and his being one of those early prominent New England figures, um, his family being prominent New England family. Um, and I found it at a used bookstore. Uh, he, he was he was a good candidate for that. Mm. So. Great. And why are you doing this interview? I mean, aren't you really an introvert? I am an introvert. Uh, I am an introvert. I'm doing this interview because I, I hope in Jesus, and I, and I hope and trust that Jesus will take um, the the watered down things of, of my life and turn them into wine for some folk, uh, and 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 trusting and praying that this will be uh, an encouragement and a blessing to someone. Well, what we want to do in our time together is think, first of all, about your life and sort of testimony, just like we do really in some ways in a membership interview here at CHBC. And then secondly, we want to turn to your ministry for this sort of second. So so thinking about your life more, where are you from? From Lexington, North Carolina. You want to fill in the rest? Well, that's right. I, I was recently given a tour by a Thibiti uh, around Lexington. Did you grow up in a Christian home? But you got to get a tagline, man. What's the tagline? From Lexington, North Carolina. Everybody now, barbecue capital of the world. Well, that's right. I am told from Thibiti and everybody else I've met from Lexington, North Carolina, that Lexington, North Carolina is the barbecue capital of the world. However, Thibiti's own wife, Christy, may even dispute that, but we'll, we'll move on. She's from another part of North Carolina. With an all-day different kind of barbecue. Did you grow up in a Christian home? I did not. I did not. Now, I, yes, you did. 
No, I didn't. Um, you, okay. You certainly grew up going to church. No, not frequently. No. no. Your mother these days attends church more frequently than she did then. Regularly, weekly. Very much weekly. So describe the home you grew up in religiously. Um, I'm the youngest of eight children, and uh, the first time uh, I saw my father in a church uh, was at his funeral six years ago. Mm. Um, my mother uh, made valiant efforts, I think, in small-town North Carolina uh, to have some interest in things spiritual and to you know, encourage the children in that direction. Um, being the youngest of eight, my next, my next sibling is 10 years older than me. So they were largely adults or on the verge of being adults. And so, you know. You had a bunch of parents, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but the point there was my mother couldn't sort of coerce them into going the way she could me. I was still the minor in the home. Mm. And she would, she would drag me out to church sometimes and, and I would fight that and resist that and do everything I could to make her late, which she hated being late to church when she went. And um, had no interest in spiritual things. But you were a serious kid. Yes, yes. Because again, in, in my recent visit with your family, your older sisters <laughs> that visit would haunt me. Rep- represented you as a real bookworm. <laughs> yeah, I loved to read. Um, I, I would, I could take books or people, either one. Uh, being the introvert that I was, usually books. Um, and about the time of the advent of Atari, um, books and sometimes video games. But um, from the earliest days, I, I think there must have been some movement afoot to encourage literacy among young people. Um, there would be these little these uh, periodic mailers to the schools that all the kids would get. that basically were catalogs. You order various books and. I remember just badgering my mom and dad, you know, order, order me this book or this Encyclopedia Brown was a, was a favorite when mm. I was a little boy. Um, and uh, my mom would regularly order me books and uh, I would I would curl up with them. To this day, getting books in the mail is like, I mean, it's, it's, it's better than Christmas in that mm. sense. It's, better, it's like unwrapping gifts uh, Christmas. Mm. Now, I think we were talking the other day and you said that 70 percent of African-Americans grow up in homes with only one parent. Yes, seventy percent of kids are, are born uh, essentially out of wedlock without the benefit of um, both mother and father. So how did it affect you not having your father in your life growing up? My dad was around till about age fourteen. Okay. Uh, my mom never married. I'm the only child um, born to him. My mother, um, my mother siblings had a different father. Um, I don't, I don't want to dishonor my dad, but I want to give you an accurate sense of what this was like. Um, my father also had a relationship, a known relationship with another woman in town, a small town. So it was then therefore public knowledge. Um, about age 14, my mom asked him to leave. Um, and at the time I didn't think a great deal about it because I would see him around town. Uh, he'd make sure I had pocket money and those kinds of things. Um, but father absence is a haunting thing. I mean, there's a presence to the absence. You, you, it's, there's a ghost of sorts. And you realize when you get to be my age how much you have no categories for. Um, you, you realize how you've never seen daily what it looks like for a husband to love a wife. Um, you realize daily, um, how many things you don't know how to do, from, from tying a tie well 
to shaving. I'm sitting here scraggling now because I don't, I don't know how to shave. I've never shaved. Whenever facial hair comes off my face, it's because I've been to the barber. Um, to doing a good shoe shine. Um, to knowing how to interact with other men and other women in a, in a, in a, in a biblically manly way. There's so much you have to discover. Um, and there's such longings. And, and that longing um, sort of floods into your life. Uh, sometimes in the most mundane times, you know, picking out a tie. Um, and other times when you, when you really know you need it. I mean, in, in the most profound moments. So, uh, growing up without dad was, was, was growing up, um, with, without example, without model, without instruction, without encouragement, without rebuke and correction, with, with, without strength, um, without tenderness from a, from a, from a male perspective. And what you do, what I did, what I think most African-American boys who are growing up in this situation do is fight to fill that void with some sense of what it means. And, and often very much the wrong sense, a, a wrong sort of machoism, a, a wrong sort of uh, aggression, um, a, a wrong sense of uh, control, commanding control in your relationships, uh, a wrong sense of um, almost a Machiavellian sense of um, ethics and, and, and how you survive and how you negotiate this. So the, so the loss and the absence of, of, of my pops um, is profound and affects me now. One of the ways it affected me growing up is contributed to what my sisters were telling in terms of the seriousness that, that I had as a kid. Was, you know, in the sixth grade, I, I am um, probably the only school, the only kid in school who, who is vocally and adamantly committed to a one-woman relationship. I want to be married in the sixth grade. You know? And this was not because you were a Christian? This is not because I was a Christian. It's because my mom and dad weren't married. It's because my dad wasn't there. It's because of what I heard um, about his relationships. It was because of the, the not often, but the occasional um, animosity that would exist between me and my other siblings uh, because of that relationship and his relationship with my mom. Uh, it's because of, you know, the way the kids play dozens, you know, and sooner or later there'd be something said about my pops and I'd have to say something about someone else's pop. I'd be innocent enough on one level, but I would go away thinking, yep, I'm going to be married. And if it kills me, um, I'm going to have one marriage and one wife, one woman for life. Um, yeah, serious to the point where <laughs> uh, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, ninth, tenth grade, I was scary in some levels, on some levels, to uh, young girls at that point. I was thinking, oh, you know, who's talking about marriage? Well, I am. That, you know, so let's, let's plan a future together. Uh, and those were <laughs> things you were thinking while you were a teenager. Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely as a teenager. For most of my teenage years. But there came a point, though, where, where that stuff, um, apart from Christ, turned in on me, really. Um, where where a, a kind of... Um, Kind of futility set in because that, that, the intensity which, which I was feeling that was far beyond my peers. Um, and why, why, why do you think that was? Well, because you said that you, you weren't the only one in this kind of circumstance. Yeah, but I think, I think, unlike most of my peers, I didn't have a sense of, um, I didn't have a sense of frivolity about life, many issues in life. I didn't have a sense of, I'm just a teenager and boys will be boys and, you know, let's play recklessly or, or without purpose and let's sort of hang out and those kinds of things. Uh, most of my peers did. I mean, most of my peers didn't labor under 
or at least didn't manifest it in the same way, uh, didn't labor under the same sets of um, fears, I guess, um, about life and about growing up and um, those kinds of things. So they were typical teenagers, and I, and I wasn't in that sense. Now, in, in your conversations, you know, since then, and certainly in recent years, do you does it do they lead you to assume that if uh, if a brother's listening to this who's African American themselves and who is is from a similar home situation, they would have probably have had similar feelings to what you've had. I think many will. I, I think you know. I think many will will have much more anger and bitterness toward their father. Uh, many will uh, will resent him for not being there. Uh, will, will resent him from being there half the time and, and there ineffectively and poorly as a witness. Many will have that. Um, many, many will grow up um, just really, uh, there's a lot of daddy pain in the world. A lot of daddy pain in the world. And, and I think, yeah, what I'm describing on some level uh, isn't uncommon. Um, and I think it, you know, there's a there's a great there's a high level to have to have adult wedlock birth rates at the at the level in which African Americans are looking at in this country, and increasingly uh, Hispanic Americans and White Americans, which are about forty forty percent and thirty three percent respectively in terms of the adult wedlock birth rate. You also have to have a high level of um, mistrust, distrust uh, between um, sexes, between the genders. Um, and so most will grow up uh, with that distrust. Most will grow up hearing mom saying things like, I don't need a man, or I can do bad by myself, um, and um, men aren't worth this or worth that. Um, and they will, they will both hear those messages, internalize them on some level, uh, and act out of them on some level, both toward women and toward, toward other men. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a, a, the shaping influence of that milieu is powerful, and it, and it shapes you towards um, anger and selfishness and distrust um, and, and you know, deeper levels of, of sin, basically. One of the other aspects of your growing up was uh, the racial identity and the way that played out in the community as a whole. Now, I also grew up in a small southern town about 10 years before you did, um, but it was one of, the, one of the most interesting things for me in our recent trip down to North Carolina was you showing us the staff around Lexington, North Carolina, which, you know, didn't look that dissimilar from the small town I grew up in. But the difference is we're getting to see it through African-American eyes as you were remembering doing this and doing this, which would sound like things yeah, I would have done, I would have done. But then when you just talked about what it was like to go uptown or when you talked about which swimming pool to go to. And you want to talk about that for just a minute and... Yeah, I mean, I grew up in 1970s North Carolina, which some people might think is significantly post-segregation. Um, not significantly enough, not, you know, socially still. Certainly there weren't laws on the books that, that, that had a, a rigid segregationist um, law. That, that had all been abolished by the point of time I was growing up. But socially, that was very much still the case. Um, that, um, yeah, you could mark out the town racially, by certain thoroughfares. Um, that's not atypical. But even in the mid-70s, I remember um, going to the barbecue center with, with my dad and there being uh, physically a wall of separation between sort of the white half of the restaurant uh, and, and the African-American half of the restaurant. I remember my dad correcting me, pulling me back from going into the door, the white half of the restaurant, saying, no, we go through here uh, into what essentially was the, 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 the kitchen side with a counter. 
um, you know, the, the growing up in high school, while you could have some interracial friendships, those certainly can go only so far. Interracial dating at that time was, was largely out of the question, uh, even, even dangerous in some ways. Um, the swimming pools, as you said, there was a, there was a black pool, there was a white pool. Now they weren't called that. Yeah, well, the black pool was called the black pool. No. Yeah, and the white pool was called uh, the Big L. It was an L shape. Uh-huh. Uh, it was called the Big L. Uh, but even if, if you know, there's an integrated pool, you, you, you went to that pool, and, and there were, you know, when you take the, the lifeguards, call the break, and everybody out of the water for 15 minutes and do whatever they do, well, there was clearly a white side of that pool, a black side of that pool, and the crossover on the white side of that pool was to invite, uh, at the least, some harangue from the crowd. Uh, at the most, some altercation of some sort. Uh, so that was all in my growing up years. Thick. That was all in the atmosphere. You you understood that. You negotiated that, um, and and you fought against that or tried to win peace with that in, in whatever ways were available to you. So what did you do in high school? What did I do? Yeah. I was a student. Um, did you and, like studying? I, high school wasn't um, a challenge for me. I slept through most of high school. Um, I was, I was also, it was probably, it was probably an indication of some depression. I was also pretty angry through much of high school. Um, what, what, what was saving for me in, in that, in those years was basketball. Um, loved playing the game. I loved the, the guys I played the game with. Found real camaraderie there and friendship there. Um, and there were a couple of faculty, uh, members who were, who were just, uh, the Lord's provision. Uh, it was common grace to me at that time. Coach England, who was the dean of students, uh, was a legend um, in, in the town, took an interest in me, encouraged me in so many ways. Um, there was a, a couple of um, teachers um, who, who took an interest in me. One a, one, a Jewish teacher of literature who saw saw my anger and introduced me to 60s radicals uh, mm. and their writings and was trying, I think, to help me find something productive to do with that anger. Uh, another, a U.S. history teacher who was a Christian woman, uh, just meek. I mean, she just, you know, uh, I, I didn't know it to be Jesus, but, but it, Jesus just oozed out of her. I mean, she mm-hmm. was just as, as kind, as humble, as gracious, as loving as, as anyone I've ever met. And she took an interest in me as well, encouraged me. She, she saw, I think, a, a talent for, uh, for gab, for speaking, and so she started enrolling. How would she have seen that? Clubs. If in you're an introvert, okay. In history class, because you spoke up in class. I, well, she would call on you, and okay. and we oftentimes had debates, mock debates, and um, she was the the sort of leader of the debate team. Um, I would imagine you were a pretty fearsome debater. I was fun, I, you know, but you know, being angry, I sometimes wouldn't know which side I was arguing. So, it was, <laughs> you know, if you if you struck a, a good blow, I you know, I just wanted to strike back and. So she taught me a bit about how to how to engage uh, rhetorically with people. And how to so when you're 17, what are you thinking about Christianity? Uh, no thoughts about it at all. There, there's a there's a, a wrestling coach and science teacher who leads FCA at the school. Yeah, you're wearing an FCA shirt right now. Now, yeah, he'd, he'd be shocked, and and I think he'd praise God. But uh, now, is this your FCA shirt from high school? No, it looks like it though. That it, no, this is FCA shirt about seven or eight years ago. I spoke at a. FCA and Matt can still wear his shirts from high school. <laughs> Matt still has his high school figure. You know, <laughs> I think he's I, a little smaller actually. Uh, maybe <laughs> I've I've long since changed shapes. I mean, you know, <laughs> so none of my high school yeah. stuff works. But uh, this this FCA teacher um, um, 
had a number of friends in his FCA thing. He made some appeals to me to get involved, but I didn't know what Christianity was about and had no interest in it. Did you think of Christianity negatively? No, I wouldn't say I thought of it negatively. I, I, I guess I looked at it and thought, at the most, eh, irrelevant. Um, Good for grandmothers. Yeah, yeah. The, the church that I had gone to when we went to church was largely filled with older people. Um, and, older people um, meaning people your age and my age? No, no, no. Older even then. The pastor might have been in his 60s, and okay. most of the congregation would have been in and around that demographic. Um, so, yeah, it was grandmama's thing, you know, it was mama's thing. And uh, I didn't see a vibrant, active Christian witness among young people or, or sort of parent age people, you know, mid 30s, mid 40s. So, where did this uh, angry, bright high school student end up going to college? North Carolina State University. Majoring in? Psychology. I, I went there as an engineering major, and I took the math placement test and uh, thought, yeah, I, I need to do psychology. <laughs> and why psychology? Uh, one of my uncles is uh, schizophrenic and, and, and some other issues. And um, he's the most fascinating man I've ever seen. You know, I, as, a, as a young boy, I, I, I lived with my grandmother for a while. This was her son. In, in Lexington. In Lexington. And just watching him. He was curious. I mean, he was, and I thought, I want to understand him. Uh, I, I, and so I was drawn to, even now I'm drawn to him. I mean, you know, he, he just, in some ways, my favorite uncle. He's essentially checked out of life. He's essentially long ago, decades ago, um, he, he was to get married. And on his wedding day, his fiance told him that she would not marry him, but would marry his best friend. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, he had been promising uh, he had been a sharp young man, um, and and life for him in many ways ended that day. I mean, hmm. he just he couldn't cope with that, um, and and so he's developed any number of mental health issues. Um, he's just a fascinating man to me, and uh, so so when I went off to school, I had in the back of my mind, okay, I'll do engineering because that, that that'll make money. Um, but you know, when I got there and took that placement test, uh, in the back of my mind, I was thinking psychology. Um, and um, God was was working providentially because at the same orientation for the engineering students, the the psychology major orientation was happening. So I at least took a peek at that. And a coordinator of African American students, um, a coordinator of African American students, took an interest in me, connected with me, uh, and would call me up a week or two later when I was sitting at home during the summer, babysitting a nephew, really not knowing how I was going to go to college. Um, we, we didn't, we couldn't afford it, hadn't heard anything in financial aid. And she calls and says, would you be interested in majoring in psychology? I said, yeah. She said, if you're interested in majoring in psychology, I have a full scholarship for you. Wow. And I said, yes. You know. <laughs> uh, and so went to NC State. It's the only school I applied to. And, um, yeah. And, and, you know, North Carolina is a place that's famous for colleges. There mm-hmm. must be 100, 200 colleges in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. NC State would certainly be considered one of the best. Absolutely. Best engineering school, best design so, school. So were your friends and family surprised that you ended up going to NC State? I mean, did they expect you, if you were going to go to college, to go to a community college? or? Oh, no. My friends and family weren't. Okay. Um, despite the, the sort of what I'll call racist um, assumptions and practice of high school guidance counselor who said, you need to go to a small college with other black students. I don't think you can cut it uh, at, a, at a large white university. You know, that's sort of the, the vibe she's given. Now, I'm graduating, you know, amongst the head of my class. I'm, I'm, I'm an A student sleeping through class. And this is, this is what she was telling me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in one sense, I applied to NC State 
despite her. I mean, you know, it, it, it was the only school I applied to. I thought, I, yeah, I can cut it there. Um, and uh, so no one would have been surprised. And you ended up doing well there. Yeah, the Lord was gracious there. You you ended up doing one degree, two degree, three degrees there? Uh, yeah, I did my undergraduate degree. I did a master's degree. I did all the coursework for an undergraduate degree in African-American studies as well, but I didn't do... Um, the sort of I didn't file the final paperwork to actually get that degree, um, so I did an undergraduate and master's in psychology and did all but four courses in the coursework on a doctorate in psychology, uh, so the coursework in the research. Now, is that where you became a Christian? It is. It is. But not during your undergraduate days. Nope. I was a an, an active and uh, somewhat rabid Muslim during my undergraduate days. So how did you become a Muslim? Because it sounds like from what you're saying so far, religion's not on your radar screen. Well, not until I get to, to college my freshman year. I show up there angry. I show up there with two cases of, of beer and with my roommate. I don't think Raleigh is generally thought of as a hotbed of Islam. <laughs> no. Raleigh, North Carolina. I think it is, but um, I, I think many people would be surprised to now know how many Muslims are in Raleigh, North Carolina. That, that community has been growing for, for some time. Um, uh, but no, I show up there my freshman year, and I'm just sort of this angry kid. Um, you know, drinking a little bit, thinking, okay, I'll party, we'll start over, all that good stuff. And uh, my freshman year, after, after my high school teacher introduced me to these 60s radicals, I come in and I had a library, you know, you put me in a library, there's books everywhere. I'd, I'd spend hours just going through the stacks, you know, just, what, what are these call numbers? You know, what's down here? And, and um, started taking history classes and African-American history classes. And this is the first time I was really getting this stuff. Hmm. In a more complete way. Wow. And I was swallowing it, you know, by the book. I'm walking across campus reading, never seen without a book. And it's always ha- something having to do with, with African descended peoples. What figures prominently in that reading is, is a strain of, of sort of black nationalism, which is also very much connected with, um, African American Islam in, in its, in its, in, in part of its history. And just to be clear about that, you don't mean the nation of Islam. Well, certainly the nation is prominent in it, okay. but, but even uh, the American Muslim movement, Warif Dean Muhammad, son of Elijah Muhammad, who goes off and tries to found a more orthodox brand of Islam among African Americans after Malcolm X was assassinated, etc. Um, yeah, that's still going to be fairly nationalist, you know, in its, in its, in its ethos. So, um, boy, I, that, that jumps onto the screen for me. I see these Muslim men on campus, African American Muslim men. They're upright, they're clean, they're, they're, they're manly. And they're talking about family and mm. home and community. Mm. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's what I, I yeah, I want to be that. You know, they're, they're speaking into the void. This I is, this is why you're an undergrad. This is why I'm an undergrad. I'm a freshman. And I'm looking at that and I'm drawing to that. And so I'm reading everything I can that's, that's sort of around that. Well, I come back my sophomore year and a friend had converted to Islam. And, uh, brother, teach me everything you can teach me. Uh, and it's my sophomore year that I convert to Islam, uh, and, and begin pursuing um, that sort of religious identity. And, and what positive change did that bring in, in your life? Uh, well, in terms of externals, um, a fairly rapid uh, change of life. I stopped drinking. Uh, I start eating cleanly. Um, I, I, become, I do become this sort of moralist, legalist, you know, and start to insist upon certain things, you know, from friends and people around me. Um, you know, I, I develop a... Uh, I have a system for thinking more coherently about uh, some things I cared about sort of politically and how to put those things in place in service to the African-American community. Uh, so I'm engaged in any number of sort of local um, activities on campus, off campus, 
um, and on those issues, protests and various things. Um, so all of that stuff sort of grows out of that change. Now, if you're listening to this and you're interested in Thabiti's journey in Islam and in Islam itself, we have another interview um, that is on Islam with Thabiti. Uh, so you might be interested in going to the Nine Marks website and finding that as well. Thabiti, I can't imagine that this was received well back in Lexington, North Carolina. I think it was received with, with puzzlement. You know, nobody had ever seen it as, a, as my sister would say, a Muslim. You know, nobody had ever seen one of those, you know. Um, and, and to come back and say, you know, I'm a Muslim, I'm practicing Islam, faith, one, but one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. Folk are like, okay, that's stuff that happens over in the Middle East. I mean, well, you know, what's that about? So there was a, a, a distant curiosity. Uh, my family just graduated, they just basically asked lots of questions and gradually came to sort of accept it. Some of them, I think... Now, did, uh, did your mom ever go to church at that point? When you were in college, was she starting to go to church she yet? She started to go to church at that point. And did she did she ask you to go, and was that awkward? No, I don't go to a Christian to church. I, listen, I was so anti-Christian at that point, that to ask me Okay, to now go, that changed from when you were 17. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So I go from sort of, uh, it's irrelevant, struggling at all, to... Um, that this is a lie. This is a falsehood. Now, the, the piece that you're missing there is is my junior year. I'd gotten arrested in high school, and um, after having gotten arrested in high school, um, I did what I saw lots of other people doing. They would they would try and clean themselves up and go to church. I knew I had a court date. <laughs> I needed to, to be living differently in anticipation. This of is what when you're 17, 18, 16, 16, 17. Um, so I, I go I I go to this church and. Uh, I, I don't hear the gospel preach, um, I, and that's partly my not having ears to hear, but probably not clear exposition of the gospel. And uh, I join this church, and I'm and I'm I'm dunked in the water in this church. I'm quote unquote baptized in this church, having never heard the gospel, having never professed faith, having never committed myself to following Christ. So my sophomore year and freshman year, when Islam is being presented, and and what I'm seeing is what I think is manhood. And, and I know the, the, the experience I had had made no dent in me, had made no change in me. I, I, am, I am considering Christianity a very pie-in-the-sky, made-up, otherworldly, um, unreal religion, a false religion. And are your African-American studies that you're getting into really for the first time in your freshman year, are they giving you more objections to Christianity? Not really, um, because the, at least in the classroom, the, the way the history is told largely is, is in part through the lens of the church. So if you're talking about resistance to slavery, if you're talking about the civil rights movement, any of that. Well, but defenses of slavery. Well, yeah, but this is, most of these are being told from the vantage point. Most of the classes I was taking were being told from the vantage point of African Americans, okay. um, in, in which you know, what was being celebrated there was the resilience of the people. And, and, and part of that resilience was, was founded upon the activity of the church uh, and people's sort of faith. In okay, so, and, and this Muslim faith lasts throughout your undergraduate career? Mm-hmm, to perhaps a year after graduating. And into your master's degree? Uh, I took two years off between my undergraduate and master's degree, mm-hmm. so it's, it lasts into that sort of two years. So what was it like being a Muslim in Raleigh, North Carolina? Uh, it was interesting. I think I benefited in those years from sort of the growing tolerance, multicultural sort of fad and trend. So now we had a Muslim that we can invite to the table. 
Mm. You know, now we now we can get that perspective. And and so, you know, at least on the university campus, I've met with lots of welcoming arms, you know, uh, from that sort of perspective. We, we value your diversity. We, we value your input. Come, come. No matter how rabid and anti-university I, I was being and, you know, et cetera. Um, oh, no, we, we're glad you're here. You know, no one's sort of meeting me with truth or even assuming there's a conversation to be had about what's true. But, you know, we're just glad you're here. Uh, so that was experience on the campus. Outside the campus, well, I was at that point, you know, um, sort of connected with African American pockets of the African American community that had a similar political orientation, et cetera. So um, what I was experiencing there was was some, you know, welcoming, you know, so far as I shared that orientation on some level. Um, you know, and, and, but that's a small circle. The, the larger African American Muslim community, suspicious because I attended a predominantly white university. Um, the Arab Muslim community. Uh, and was that large? The Arab Muslim community. Small but growing. Uh, this is largely the, the, the campus community. Um, there's a mosque on campus and or just across the street from campus. And, um, you know, it was growing at that point. Uh, yeah, I knew nothing culturally about um, sort of Arabicized Islam. And so I was <laughs> breaking all kinds of faux pas there. Um, and so there was some distancing there. But I found a pocket of friends hanging out with, active with in the community, on campus and off campus. What negative changes happened in your life as a result of becoming a Muslim? Oh, the most profoundly negative is, is what I thought I was finding was a way of channeling uh, sort of the anger that I had. When that anger fairly quickly, fairly easily became a, a, a deep-seated hatred. Um, so a hatred for Christians, um, a, a hatred um, for white people in general. Um, uh, in, in some ways, a hatred for um, African Americans. I mean, this this sort of this assumed superiority of, of you know, I know the truth. Islam is the one path, um, and most African Americans, but most of them are not Muslims, are therefore ignorant. You know, they need to be enlightened and brought into the fold. Um, so. You know, I start to view the world through that kind of superiority and that kind of um, hatred toward. toward so, the years later, one of the things that a, a fat, middle-aged white Christian like me would think of when they think of you is your smile that you got right now on your face, <laughs> your laugh, which is just a little little trickle of right there, which generally we get in great torrents. Are you saying that if I met you during that period, the face I'm seeing right now is not the face I would see? Oh, Mark, this is this conversation is impossible. Thirteen years ago. Uh, to sit in this room, <clears throat> uh, to be a member of this church, um, unthinkable, unthinkable. I don't think anyone who knew me, and certainly not me myself, would think uh, I have any friendships uh, with wife, any 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 acquaintance beyond passing familiarity. Um, with with white people, I, I you know I would have told you you know you know the old joke you know some of my, some people accuse of being racist some of my best friends are you know African American or, or whatever is the case yeah my line was uh, some of my best friends have friends that are white <laughs> you know as as that's about as close as I would get to this and as for my face a perpetual scowl okay so you ran a bookstore I did I come into that bookstore let's say mm. white people ever come into your bookstore. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm one of those. I come into your bookstore and I start talking to you. Are you friendly? Uh, only if you're going to buy books. I was happy to, to 
you know, relieve you of your, your <laughs> economic means. Um, but I wasn't really interested in discourse. I mean, wasn't interested in, in cultivating a friendship. So now, During these years that you were at, you said you took a couple of years out, and then you pursued this master's degree in psychology, mm-hmm. and then you began the Ph.D., mm-hmm. During those years, or at least during, I know during your undergraduate years, those intervening years, and your master's years, you're speaking all around the country. A fair bit. A fair bit. Talk about that for a second. What, what are you doing? Well, at that point, Afrocentrism is taking off. Malefi's, yeah, when, okay. Malefi Asante's book, uh, Afrocentricity. Um, Cornell is, West? Not so much West. I mean, I'm discovering West, but West is sort of over here in this different, doing a different kind of thing. He's in the um, media more. Oh, uh, yeah, in the, in the general media a bit yeah. more. But, but is that because he's more extreme? Cornel West? Yeah. yeah. No, that's because he's a bit more mainstream. Okay. You know, so Cornel West is, is at your Harvards and, yeah. and, and all Princeton. that good stuff. Yeah. yeah. He, I mean, so, so he's engaging the culture and, and engaging the media at, at a different level, at a very popular, you know, level. Omalefi Asante is a rock star on college campuses among Afrocentrists. You know, he's not getting that kind of press, but, but the thinking that he's championing, and that others, uh, Yosef Ben Yakanan, Naeem Akbar, et cetera, that these men are championing, well, that's just, that's just on our campus, just, you know, just spreading like a wildfire. And, and, um, so there's, there's tons of us who are swept up into this, this argument that we need to view the world from the vantage point of African people. And, and we need to interpret reality from that vantage point. That, that we have been psychologically sick insofar as we have been trying to engage this world basically through the lens, through the worldview of, of Europe and the West. Well, that has great appeal to me. And uh, I'm, I'm just devouring this stuff. Everything he, re- he writes, uh, I'm, I'm reading and, and, again, just devouring. And um, become pretty quickly, a, certainly a, a lead proponent on campus. Uh, and then from there, I'm getting invitations you know, both up and down the eastern seaboard primarily uh, to speak at, at college campuses and different functions. To uh, We had led successfully a long-term movement on the campus to, to create an African-American cultural center. Uh, the success of that, the erection of that building, um, got us some notoriety, our campus and student leaders some notoriety with other students who were struggling to do the same thing on other campuses. Um, and so then, you know, we, we were off and and speaking and sharing and promoting this point of view. And while you were doing that, you were beginning to disengage from Islam? I was. What happened was, was you know, because it, the African-American community, the largest... You, you, you weren't a Muslim for very long, were you? I was a Muslim for about three years, two, three years solid. And, and I mean, uh, active, you know, making salat uh, five times, prayer five times a day, um, you know, giving alms is, you know, I'm a, I'm a poor broke student, but whatever alms I can give, I'm, I'm giving, uh, fasting during Ramadan, um, you know, defending the faith, and, which in my mind meant attacking Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, that, quickly excelling any of the peers that I had there in terms of, of zeal. I, I identify with Paul when he talks about his life as, uh, as a Jew persecuting Christians, you know, more zealous than any of my brethren. Etc. Those words strike at me every time I read them. Uh, that was my life as a Muslim. Um, you know, the zeal of a convert. And so, um, but yeah, but, but, but because of the suspicions that I had from the larger African American community, said, you know, you go to a white college, I can, I can be, you know, that sold out for, for black folk and go to a white school. And the sort of, you know, problems I was creating culturally, you know, at the, the Arab mosque, et cetera. 
You know, what that what, was, you were hugging women or something? Uh, you know, trying to greet women, shake hands. Hey, how are you? Say, yeah, you know, sort of going on the women's side of the mosque. And, you know, uh, yeah, not, not good. You got to leave, son. We don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't know you uh, was, was the reaction. Um, so, yeah. So what that meant was, apart from the fellowship of some Muslim friends sort of individually, you know, I didn't have a larger sort of Muslim uh, uh, family or context. And, and so I was always in the room, in the Quran. Um, reading the Quran, thinking about the Hadith, and um, you know, practicing the faith and trying to understand the faith, reading Muslim materials, etc. The, the consequence of that, in God's grace and His mercy, was I began to see all of the errors of Islam, There's all of the inconsistent claims uh, that Muhammad is the the final and the seal of all the prophets, and and that he's prophets. The claim is that he's prophesied about in the Bible, Deuteronomy 18. Uh, John, the, 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 the promises of the comforter that would come. Uh, and, and the Quran is teaching that, you know, the Bible, you know, the Torah and the Psalms of David and the Gospels are, are revelations from God. Those things speak nothing of Muhammad. You know, um, the, the Quran is teaching that Jesus is faultless, um, you know, and, and that he's the virgin birth, it, denying that he's the son of God, um, denying the resurrection despite all of the sort of historical accounts that we have in the scripture, um, even extra biblical, you know, acknowledgement that this is what Christians have always believed in understanding these events. Um, I couldn't reconcile those things. I couldn't hold those things together. And I couldn't hold together the idea that God was a God of, of mercy uh, and, and that, that God was righteous, Allah was righteous. Um, and, and the great distance that I felt from God. And, and, and the great uncertainty about God. That was the more I learned, the less I knew God. In fact, what I was teaching, what was being taught was you can't know God. So, I didn't hold that together. So, okay, but, but you didn't, <clears throat> you didn't wake up on a Thursday as a Muslim, have problems thinking about it Thursday afternoon and on Friday become a Christian. That's right. That's you, right. <clears throat> you, for quite a while, I guess, you <clears throat> dwelt in more sort of religious twilight of at least a year. On my best days, I was an agnostic, and, and on my worst days, I was an atheist. So I, but I, you were then self-consciously not a Muslim anymore. Oh, no, I, I rejected Islam. I didn't believe Islam to be any more true than Christianity, and, and that the consistent thing to do would be to reject all religions. I, I had, as a, a sort of hobby, intellectual curiosity, uh, been reading um, uh, a good bit on intellectual, not intellectual, on, on African, traditional African religions and philosophies, reading John S. and Beattie, uh, and, uh, reading things on Yoruba and, um, thinking, thinking about the Dogon of, of, of West Africa and, and all that good stuff. All of that was clear to me to be sort of pagan and, and not universal and not true. And, and so all religions sort of then became tribal in my mind in that sense, and all of them false. If you wouldn't mind, share some of the difficult personal circumstances that God used to, yeah. I guess, continue to yeah. make well, you think about him. And Well, that year of, of sort of vacillating between agnosticism and atheism was, was probably, uh, probably, it was the, the hardest years in, in, in my marriage. And you're, um, you're, you're a student then or not? No, I've, I've graduated then. You, um, you're, you finished your BA. I finished my BA. You're doing I've, a master's I've, or not? Not yet started my okay. master's. This is, um, just but about. you got married as a what, junior? We got married as juniors in college. Yeah. So I am um, brittle and empty. My wife and I, for the first time, I knew I'd married my wife the first time I saw her. 
And we have always been just sort of... You picked um, so well. Oh, I mean, Lord even as a Lord. non-Christian, that's just and amazing. was the Lord. Um, she is his favor to me. She is his gift to me. I have found a precious thing in my wife. Um, and um, so we had just been just once again throughout undergraduate school and early years in marriage. And all of a sudden now, we're not communicating. We're passing in the night. Um, there's a part of me, this nagging part of me, that is beginning to doubt that we're going to make it. And that's that's quite scary. Uh, because you remember now, all, all I want to do is, is have one woman, one woman man, have a wife. And uh, this this thing is shaky, best. And um, so we're struggling. We're having arguments, not arguments, full blown. But we're 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 now miscommunicating, and we're now. Um, just not on the same page. That had and, never had been she case. become a Muslim? No, she had never become a Muslim. But she was not a Christian. She wept when I converted to Islam. She was not a Christian. And I, I think, though, there was enough of her grandmother's example, who had been a Christian, um, to sort of still remnant in her mind uh, that, that told her, this this isn't right. I don't think this is the right direction. But um, So that year, this is emptiness in, in, in our relationship, struggling in our relationship. You were doing what, running a bookstore? Uh, no, at this point I'm working in a little community nonprofit, and Christy is a first year teacher. Um, well, during that year we get pregnant, and we began to then reignite all of these sort of uh, American dream kind of things: White House, picket fence, two and a half kids. You know, we will. Um, Which make, is, by the way, where you are just about exactly right now. This is exactly right. <laughs> uh, you know, we will make our way in the world on our own terms. You know, we'll save, invest, and. You know, we'll, we'll make all we can, can all we get, and sit on our can was what we were aiming at. And um, and there's this great excitement. I'm the youngest of eight. She's the youngest of eight. Um, and So we're the babies who now are about to start a family. And so all of this, all of these people descend on us. Nieces, nephews, brothers, sisters, parents, grandparents, you know, doting on us and anticipating the birth of this child. We go to the doctor's office. The, the first visit, we would hear the baby's heartbeat. And um, the doctor tells us that um, she cannot find a heartbeat, that the baby was dead. And she told us that in in the coldest tone or way I've ever heard a human speak to another. And um, my wife is bawling, and I'm standing over sort of in a corner, uh, unable to, to console her, to even sort of touch her in any meaningful way, unable to get at that pain, um, feeling incredibly small in the universe and um, out of control. Realizing for the first time depth of my sin and smallness and being out of control. We go home, I'm in a depression. Um, I'm sitting at home flipping through the television channels and uh, this television preacher comes on who's preaching expositionally through the Bible. First time I'd ever seen that. And the Bible is making sense. The words have an allurement. You know, they're, they're sort of calling out to me it wasn't even a particularly evangelistic message. He was in Timothy, study to show yourself approved, talking about the life of the Christian mind and and, uh, and pursuing God and being being ready uh, intellectually and ready for every good work. And I'm just drawn to this. We tape it, and my wife comes home, or I tape it. My wife comes home. I say, you got you got to watch this guy, you know. And we start watching him taping his shows and find out his church is in D.C. So we now was she surprised that you were interested oh, she's, in watching she's a Christian shocked. preacher? She's shocked because in in previous years. She had wanted to go to church. Um, she had and, and made those overtures, and I had shot them down. You know, I'm not interested in that blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, uh, Michelangelo's uncle or whoever he is. 
uh, no interest in me. Um, so he, she is a bit surprised, caught off guard, maybe even a little bit suspicious, I don't know. Uh, but we start watching this, this, this man uh, regularly. His church is in D.C. We come to D.C. We visit him on that Sunday, and he is preaching the gospel the way I've never heard. He's in uh, the Old Testament. He's in the, in the Golden Calf uh, chapter. He's unpacking that chapter sort of expositionally. And he's laying down law, and, and he's, he's sort of unpacking what it means to be a sinner and to be opposed to God and the effects of sin. He's enumerating particular sins. I'm, I'm guilty of most of them. I'm in this church. There may be nine, ten thousand in this sanctuary. It's like I'm the only one in there. And, um, you know, he works his way through that. And then he holds out the Savior. You know, that, that our sin has placed us in enmity against God. God is omnipotent. God is just. God is a God with wrath. And he will apply that wrath to the judgment of sin uh, unless we can be rescued. And that his son is, is the rescuer. His son is the savior. We need to be saved. We need to be plucked out of the fire to come, of the wrath that God is on our way. And that is Jesus. And it's the cross that reconciles God's justice and righteousness with his mercy and his love. Um, and and uh, by God's grace, I believe both my wife and I came to saving faith that day. And that's what year? Ooh, that's 11 years ago. 95? Yeah, somewhere in there. Did you change much as a result of your conversion? Yes, yes. Um, the hatred I'd known, I didn't have. Um, the scowl was replaced with a smile. Uh, hmm. You know, uh, I had a desire. So longing. that's when this face was born that I know. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. And that and, laugh? Come on, that laugh had to have been there before. A little bit, but I was laughing about less. Huh. Uh, and certainly wasn't laughing with just anyone. Huh. Uh, uh, yeah, so there's a different kind of roar to my laughter after that. Uh, the Lord surrounds us with Christian friends, friends we'd known earlier in college and even in grade school. He bring, he moves to the Raleigh area, and now we have Christian fellowship, and they're helping us to grow in Christ. Uh, if one of the first things we do is we, we go to the bookstore, because uh, we had owned a bookstore in undergraduate school. That was just natural for us, so let's figure out this Christian thing. And uh, I make my way back to the one shelf in the corner where they have the good Christian books you know, on theology and church history and that good stuff. And the first four books I buy as a Christian uh, was sort of spine out. This book jumps out at me called Knowing God, J.I. Oh, Packer. The and, Sovereignty of God. My and, goodness. And a few books down to the right is this three-volume set, um, Basic Doctrines of the Bible, from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, those are the first four books I read as a new Christian. And, you know, the Lord has, has been steadily helping me try and catch up to what those men were telling me in that book Praise over God. these last seven, 11 years. Brother, we've only got a little bit of time left. And uh, I want us to talk for a few minutes about your, your ministry the Lord's given you um, in these years now that you've been walking with him. How did you make the decision that you wanted to go into full-time Christian ministry? Uh, it was irresistible. I didn't. Initially, uh, I think people were recognizing gifts in me to teach. Uh, I had. What was that happening? You had a ministry in North Carolina. Yeah, well, we we began we became part of a um, a local church there. That, that subsequently there was a, a a church startup that we joined there, and all hands on deck. So we were doing some teaching. Even before then, we were having we were hosting small group Bible study in our home just with friends. And it was fairly evangelistic, you know, wanting to get the gospel out. That, that was my, that was my heart at the time. I just want to go out and share the gospel. I didn't have an idea of the centrality. Did you share the gospel with friends who you'd been Muslims with? Yeah. They, they didn't stay around long. 
Uh, but Were they surprised? Uh, Mr. Muslim rectitude? A little bit. A little bit shocked by that. Not sure what to do with that. Um, not sure what it meant, you know, et cetera. Not, not having ears to hear. The Lord would give me a wider ministry over time to Muslims who, who weren't my friends, who, who weren't sort of my, my network of friends when I was a Muslim. Um, but yeah, we get involved in teaching. In, in fact, in God's providence, you've been used in what was perhaps the first public debate on the Arabian Peninsula, at least that we know of in maybe since Muhammad, wow. you know, on, uh, <laughs> on Christianity and Islam. It's a great blessing to, to show you the sense of humor that the Lord has, a sense of irony. Um, we're there in that discussion, in that debate. I'm there as an African-American who had been a Muslim who had come to be a Christian from North Carolina. I'm engaged in a dialogue with another African-American, now resident there, who had grown up in a Christian home, is now Muslim from New York, so that the Lord would pluck mm. two young brothers and, and place them <laughs> on the peninsula to, before a Muslim crowd to have that discussion. So if you had this ministry in North Carolina, you had a church that you loved, you were, I guess, working on your Ph.D. Yes. In psychology. Why did you move to Washington? Well, we had, um, I had slowly become convinced that... Uh, I, the Lord had slowly been giving me a bigger heart for the church and a bigger pastoral concern. I'd seen so much bad teaching on television, so much sort of prosperity gospel uh, afflicting um, the churches that I knew that I thought I want to I want to help. I want to guard. I want to shepherd. Um, so that that small group thing sort of moved into the church as part of a ministry of the church. Um, and, and, and people were affirming gifts to teach. And I was becoming increasingly convinced that my career path in psychology would largely be irrelevant in, for eternity. You know, and what I wanted to do was something that, that aimed more directly at impacting eternity. Uh, and so slowly but surely, because I had had some skepticism about preachers and, you know, sort of folk who were unfaithful, slowly but surely the Lord started convincing me that you, I'm not calling you to make you one of those guys. I'm calling you to love my people and to shepherd my people. And, and that became a passion. That became a desire. So I, I leave gradu- uh, graduate school, as I said, with four courses to complete on that doctorate. Um, and the Lord um, calls us into ministry in that church uh, through an interesting set of circumstances. Uh, it also becomes clear that I need to leave the job that I had in North Carolina, which is how the Lord brought us here to D.C. for work with a think tank here in D.C., what think tank yeah. did you work with there? A group called the Center for the Study of Social Policy. And what were you doing in that think tank? I managed their work on state-level policy that affects kids and families. And you did that for, what, five years? About five years, yeah. And it was the Lord moving us here uh, to D.C. for that job that you know, it was through that, that he brought us here to this church. And, and what a gift from God that has been to be here, to be tutored by uh, the men in this church and by this congregation in, in what it looks like to love God's people, to be loved by them. And a lot of the ministry the Lord's given you here in D.C. has been just out of your home. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've learned hospitality here. You know, um, and, and, you know, he's shown us how essential, I mean, it's, just, it's so essential for ministry that he, he lists it in the list of qualifications for, for a pastor. Right. <laughs> Hospitable. Uh, we've grown in that way. Um, so this has been a wonderfully fruitful sojourn, uh, our time here. Your ministry has also obviously included teaching. And preaching, yes, yes, pleasure to open, open God's word. And then you were recognized as an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. What an honor that that has been! What an honor that has been. Service congregation is one of its pastors. Yeah. 
And then you actually, at some point, decided to leave your secular job and step full-time onto the staff of the church. Yes. Tell me about that decision. A little over a year ago, uh, this congregation extended me the opportunity to, to join the staff and to work full-time. That was the culmination of six years' prayer, of, of dreaming about serving full-time in the pastorate. Uh, and so um, that was last July 1 that uh, joined the staff here after having been an elder for, at that point, a year or two. And you served as the chairman of our elders. Yes, great, great joy, great privilege. Did a superb job. Well, praise God. How was it serving on staff in a, in a multiracial congregation? It's a glimpse of heaven. And the glimpses of church you had growing up were African-American churches. Yes. Yeah, the church is largely segregated in my hometown and, and North Carolina and most places. Um, I, I'm increasingly convinced that attaching racial adjectives to the noun church um, is something that is impermissible theologically. Uh, I understand how it can happen practically where language is concerned, but it should not be our desire. It should not be our intent. We should be striving and praying that the Lord would make us to look like that one new man that he has created in himself. Uh, he has intended to make for himself a special people of all nations and languages. And to the extent that that's reflected in the local church, it is but a foreshadowing of heaven. Uh, and if we labor in the gospel in that way, then, then the gospel is made even more attractive and compelling. But so what are you saying to brothers who are listening to this who are in a largely African-American congregations or largely white congregations or largely Asian-American congregations? Oh, pray that the congregations would be permeable. Pray that what would be so central to your congregation is Jesus and the message about Jesus that, that every man, every nation can hear that, love that, find everything in common in Jesus, despite the differences of culture and class and race, uh, even political orientation. Those things are, are, are vastly insignificant, seriously insignificant and secondary or tertiary to Jesus. So major on Jesus. So this congregation that you're pastoring, in First Baptist Church Grand Cayman, yes. that's a multiracial congregation, yes. even more than Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington. Yes, and what a privilege it would be to go there and love those folk and to be loved by them. They're a sweet, humble congregation. They love God's Word. Uh, it is a glimpse, I think, of heaven. And it'll be a joy to go there and see if we can't teach people to hate the false paradise of this world in a, in a little island in the Caribbean mm. and to long for the paradise to come. That is the real paradise, and seeing God face to face. I'm told we have about four minutes left. I can't believe we only have that amount of time. I'm sure there's probably some more time rustling around there we could find. But in case it's true, just quickly, a few final questions. What would you say about the health of African-American congregations in the U.S.? Uh, poor. Sadly poor. Largely liberal. In the pulpit. Uh, much more conservatism in the pew. African-Americans mean to be Bible-loving, Bible-believing people. Um, we need a reformation in the African-American church. And that's one of the reasons that you wrote the book um, that some people who are listening to this may have read on ordination sermons. What's the title? It's called The Faithful Preacher. The, the Faithful Preacher, mm-hmm. published by Crossway. Published by Crossway. Um, why why did you write that book? Uh, that book sort of sprang out of doing research for another book. I just looked up at one point and saw that um, three great men in the history of the African-American church, Lemuel Haynes, Daniel Alexander Payne, and Dr. Francis Grimke, um, men who had been faithful in their pastorates for, Haynes had the shortest pastorate of 33 years in the same congregation. Um, Grimke was 55 years in the same congregation. Here in Washington. In Washington, D.C., 15th Street Presbyterian. And these men had all said important things about the nature of the ministry uh, that people should be reading today. 
Uh, what does the Lord require of us as stewards of his oracles, of his word? That we be faithful. And these men have, and these men have written in such a way and talked in such a way um, that they have exalted faithfulness and the need to be faithful. Uh, and so Crossway has been great in publishing that. And you're, you, wrote, you wrote that because your desire is to see what? Faithfulness in the African-American church and health in the African-American church and well, gospel-centeredness in the African-American church. Well, and also let me say that as somebody who's in a multiracial congregation as a, uh, uh, a pastor, that um, I found it a good book to read oh, yes. because it was just encouraging to me in, in learning about these uh, some faithful brothers and some really interesting messages and just it's it's more of my history one of the things i think i've learned from or been helped to be taught by your friendship brother is that african-american history of christians is more profoundly part of my history mm-hmm. as a christian the racial component is significant and secondary that it's primarily my history of my family and i think because of the way african-americans were enslaved by people who named the name of christ it's particularly powerful to hear the gospel from from uh, people who have been so obviously abused mm. by people who call themselves messengers of Christ. Mm. For them to continue to testify to Christ shows that they are testifying to Christ. Mm. You know, it's mm. um, and John Piper wrote the foreword to this book. John Piper, how'd, how'd, how'd that happen? Well, much through no, 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 no. I don't mean that. I mean, why would he? Why would he write the foreword to this book? Uh, I think Piper is one of those men who who's, who's, is passionate about God. Everybody knows that. And he's passionate about what follows from being passionate about God. Yeah. And part of what follows about being passionate about God is, is this vision of the church that is all nations. That is all nations. And then um, you've got another book that people may have read. This may be the one, the reason they're listening to this interview. It's uh, The Devolution of Theology. The Decline of, theolo- of African American Theology. Yep. Decli- the decline of African American theology. University Press. University Press. Now, did you write that just to make people mad? I mean, even the <laughs> title is like a slap in the face. I was just trying to be accurate with the title. Uh, it, it is um, as the storyline. I think when you start from the generation of Lemuel Haynes and Phyllis Wheatley uh, and and um, others in that generation, 1740, 1770s, 1780s, the first writers in African American history. Um, John Ceylon has said, said basically that, that reform theology was the deepest structuring elements of their worldview. And that's clear when you're reading their stuff, you, you see their love for, for God and it expressed in, in what we would term sort of in reformational terms, in reformed theological terms. The sovereignty of God and everything, including Lemuel, slavery. Lemuel Haynes' farewell sermon. Oh, extraordinary. Awesome. Yeah. Um, the question became for me, because I didn't think I'd find that. I didn't think I'd find any real theological corpus early in the history. Yeah. And when I found that and thought, oh my, we've been adrift. And, 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 and we haven't known our history, religiously speaking. Um, so why write that book? Well, because that history needs to be told. And, and I was actually wanting to write a different book. I wanted to write a book, of, sort of a collection of essays on reforming the African American church. And I wanted a good survey volume on the history of theology and didn't find one. So I had to I sort of said, well, let me work on this project. Um, and as I did that, it was clear that we need to rewrite the storyline of African American Christianity. The foreword to that book is by Mark Knoll. Yes. The Lord has been gracious. Mark has been a real encouragement. You, uh, you know that you are going to, the, the reviews of that book, which at this taping haven't been out yet, yeah. 
but I am sure you are going to get bludgeoned in the reviews for that book. Well, precisely from the people who ought to be bludgeoning me. So the folk who, who love the truth about God and who love sort of history, uh, I think will be appreciative of the book. The, the book is critical. You know, the book, the book argues that there... Say that's an understatement, but <laughs> the, yes, it is. The book argues that there have been several junctures in the history of African-American Christianity where we've taken significant turns for the worse theologically, no. even as the church has been very important socially and politically. Right. And that what we haven't asked ourselves is, has the social and the political success had any consequences for the very nature of the church and its mission? And I think it has. It's had profound consequences. And so it goes from that reformed truth that Haynes and others held so tightly to what we see today in terms of um, uh, sort of over the over the top word of faith, charismatic stuff, um, black liberationist theology, um, and and all kinds of things that are basically gospel denying. So, what do you want to see happen in African American churches? As a consequence of the book, or general speaking? Well, both. I, I, I want to see African American churches be, be led by and be peopled by um, folks who have a saving and abiding knowledge of Jesus Christ, who are committed to proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ in as pure and faithful a way as possible, who, who are missional in the sense of trying to reach that community and every other community. That's Which is the same thing you'd say about all of them. All churches. churches I want to see the church be yeah. the church. Yeah. You may be undertaking an editorship of another series of books. Now, by the time this interview is being listened to, that may have been begun. We, we don't know, but you want to talk about that for just a moment? Yeah, in doing the research on the IVP volume, you, what you've come in contact with, well, you don't come in contact with, is a big corpus of, of writings from African Americans early in the history. We need to correct for that and to fill that vacuum. And so it would be, we hope to do the general editor of a series of commentaries, expositional commentaries on every book of the Bible by. by African-American expositors. Thabiti, there is so much more we could talk about. Everybody's going to want to know, where'd you get your name Thabiti Anyabwile? Surely Uh, your mom didn't give you that. Oh, I was born Ron Burns. Uh, I won't tell you my middle name. Adopted Thabiti Anyabwile, actually, when I was a Muslim. Um, And God, again, in his his interesting sense of of irony and foreknowledge, um, Anyabwile means God has set me free, Mm. uh, which was fulfilled in Christ. And Thabiti means... uh, uh, loosely translated into Swahili, a true man, upright, stern, etc. Mm. Well, I praise God for what he's done in your life, and we look forward to future conversations. And thank you for writing on Nine Marks. Thank you, um, for privilege. We've uh, had good articles from you, and we look forward to continued contributions, especially in the field of leadership. Mm. And um, pray the Lord bless your ministry, and we look forward to hearing more. I'm Matt Schmucker, director of Nine Marks. We believe the local church is the focal point of God's plan for displaying His glory to the nations. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. To that end, we pray that Nine Marks Audio will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation.